How sweet it is. The Wildcat women are off to the Sweet 16. Spring football has started. Don't expect that much. And Arizona lands a pair of commitments for football. You're listening to the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't easy. But Arizona advances in the NCAA tournament, beating BYU 52-46 and really needing a late rally to get past the Cougars. Arizona sparked by a late run, especially uh, Ari McDonald, who got over some early uh, shooting woes. And she still was just one for five behind the arc, but she finished the game with 17 points including four steals as well, and she had the steal of the game uh, with BYU trying to cut into the Wildcat lead. She got the steal near midcourt race to the other end for the eventual final score and the go-ahead field goal. Uh, Really, Arizona needing that late run because they didn't shoot well, shooting just in the mid-30s, but they also defended really well because BYU didn't shoot much better. Uh, Arizona was beaten on the boards by 5, 29-24. However, they beat BYU on the boards 14-9, and and really an the key point of the game was an offensive rebound where Trinity Baptiste got the rebound then kind of tipped it out, ended up being a three-pointer, and that gave Arizona uh, kind of the lead to for good in the, in the game. Uh, Arizona, at the end of the day, was a little more athletic, uh, was a little bigger, and then that was the key. One of the curious things I thought is uh, Arizona had taken a, a small lead late in the third uh, quarter. Kate Reese went to the bench. She was just wiped. She was just exhausted. And they really waited a while to bring her back. And at that time, BYU had actually, I think, built up a four-point lead. And once Reese came back in the game, uh, that's when Arizona was really able to kind of uh, spark the comeback. Reese herself finished uh, with 12 points, knocking down both of her three-pointers. And really, you take away her two-for-two two from behind the arc, and the rest of the Wildcats went just three for 17. However, that was, you know, the key was Arizona's ability to get in the lane. Arizona using their size advantage and Arizona again dominating the offensive boards Uh, defense was also the key although Shaylee Gonzalez scored 16 points she did so on 5 of 13 shooting Uh, and then Paisley Harding who uh, only was only able to play 22 minutes she took a hard fall she was just one of nine from the field and really you get rid of uh, some inside players both uh, Tegan Graham uh, who was effective behind the arc and uh, Lauren Gustin, uh, they were really the only two who shot well for the Cougars, combining to go 9 of 19 from the field. The rest of the Cougars went 9-32. So Arizona now advances, uh, and they will get a Texas A&M team that for the second straight game really took advantage of some curious calls. Down uh, late to Iowa State, it appeared that they were going to foul. They called the jump ball instead possession went to Texas A&M and the Aggies were able to go down and and hit the uh, game tying shot and eventual game winner Uh, Iowa State really controlled most of that game that was after the referees kind of bailed them out in their first round game so you you wonder is Arizona getting a team that's kind of on the ropes and that's just lucky to be there or are they getting a team kind of of destiny one that is, is playing some good basketball but going to play better basketball now that they have maybe second and maybe even third life in the tournament at the top of the bracket nc state uh, as we noted had struggled a little bit early on as well but they end up rolling in both of their games but they're getting a pesky indiana squad so arizona with a lot to prove their first trip since 1998 
eight when Adia Barnes was actually on the squad and the Wildcats going to the Sweet 16 despite their offensive woes kind of creeping back up in this one. They'll need to be better on the offensive end and continue to be the hounding defense that they've been in the first two rounds if they're going to hope to beat Texas A&M and advance to the Elite Eight. The Wildcat women open the NCAA tournament with a dominant 79-44 win over Stony Brook. However, the, you know one thing you can look at is the Wildcats jump out, outscore Stony Brook by 16 in the first quarter. I never really look back. You know, the one thing that I just really noticed is you just really notice the difference in athleticism between the elite teams and the, the lower level teams. And while Stony Brook had a very good season, was a pretty good team. At the end of the day, there was just a different level of athleticism and skill. Uh, while Stony Brook had a few players who were very athletic and very skilled, uh, they were on the smaller size and not quite uh, in the class of, say, an Ari McDonald, who's a little bit of an undersized player as well. But really, the difference is just at every position, the difference in overall athleticism. Every Wildcat looked like an athlete. Every Wildcat out there looks like an athlete, looks very athletic, moves pretty darn well, if not exceptional. And that just wasn't the same for, for Stony Brook, who gave up a lot of size. And if you look at some of their players, they just weren't on the same level of athleticism. And that's just kind of the nature. I think, really, that's the big difference, I think, between men's college basketball and women's college basketball, is I think there's just a bigger talent pool to spread from. And the difference between teams, say, one, like a Gonzaga and their 15 counterpart, is not so much raw athleticism. It's just athleticism and skill. Whereas you look at women's college basketball, the difference between UConn and the number seven team is glaring, much less, you know, the number 12 team that Arizona might be and the number 155 team that Stony Brook is. And that's one thing that Adia Barnes and her team have been able to do is when they get a team that has inferior athleticism or inferior skill with some comparable athleticism, Arizona's just better, and they go out and they typically win those games fairly handily. You know, you take the exception of a few games here and there in Pac-12 play, but this is a team that did not really struggle in the non-conference when they had those, you know, those scenarios. You know, what they did, and they continued to do that against the Stony Brook team, who within a few minutes were already out of the game and were playing catch-up and just never did, and if you really you take out a third quarter where Arizona played a lot of it without Ari McDonald tried some things but at the end of the day they just you know extended their lead against uh, Stony Brook and, and really establishing the inside I think is the key for Arizona well no McDonald's going to get hers and whether that's uh, 12 points or 24 points or 36 points. McDonald's going to score and McDonald's going to have a good game. But really establishing one or two of the inside players is, is, I think, key for the Wildcats. And I believe I saw the stat from azdesertswarm.com that in games where Baptiste or Kate Reese score more than 10 points, the Wildcats are undefeated this year. So I think that'll be an interesting stat to look at. Can Arizona, using their bigs, compliment McDonald, compliment some of the other guard play, and use their athleticism. The Pac-12, uh, essentially sending four teams to the Sweet 16, only Colorado uh, getting bumped off, and I will admit, I didn't see this coming. I did not think the Pac-12 was a particularly great league this year. I thought it was a little bit down, and I was completely wrong uh, in what turned out to be a fantastic first uh, two rounds of the NCAA tournament. I guess we can't call it the first weekend now because the games are concluded on Monday. 
But the the whole thing was entertaining, whether it was the collapse of the Big Ten, whether it was the collapse of the ACC, whether it was the little guys getting it done, several uh, mid-majors and even small majors making the Sweet 16. Uh, I do find it interesting, though. I think we go back to the Pac-12, and I guess uh, UCLA's Mick Cronin had a theory that at least with the Pac-12 teams, especially the California teams, uh, they had less practice. Remember, they, uh, Cronin said he couldn't even see his players until September. That, you know, they couldn't practice as a, as a team. And at one point, there was going to be no non-conference games. And he, he actually credited Sean Miller a little bit for getting all the Pac-12 coaches on a weekly and sometimes daily Zoom call. I think he said this on Jeff Goodman's podcast to talk about how they could get the uh, non-conference reinstated. He said it took a long time for these teams to really gel, and he especially mentioned his teams. The Oregon teams had both had lengthy COVID delays. That is one reason you can say why UCLA, why USC, why even the Oregon schools are gelling now and didn't necessarily show it, especially in the non-conference where they were coming off limited preseason practices. I've got to say Oregon and Oregon State have brilliant game plans. Uh, they both in the second round took on really good teams that had one great player. And they really made Iowa and Oklahoma State look like kind of low major teams. I mean, Iowa reminded me a lot of uh, Eastern Washington, who had the one really skilled big. And then were kind of lacking at other positions, especially compared to Oregon's athleticism. You know, Oklahoma State is, is not a very good team overall, especially offensively, save for Cade Cunningham, who is not only, I think, maybe the best player in the country. In fact, he received my vote for the, the Wooden Award. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a top two or three draft pick as well. You know, the Oregon-Iowa game was a weird one. It's for the first 25 minutes, that was one of the best basketball games of the tournament. And then over the next 20, you know, 35 minutes, Oregon was just too much. Oregon could score almost at will. And they let Garza, Luca Garza, the big man, do his damage, but didn't really let anyone else get going. They limited the uh, Hawkeyes from three-point range. They forced them to, you know, really trade two for two. And a lot of times they were trading three for two as Oregon was shooting really well from the outside. You know, Oregon State did the same thing as they took advantage of the other OSU's offensive flaws. You know, they knew Cunningham would get his, but by running two and sometimes three defenders at him, they made him a volume shooter, and then the rest of the Cowboys just couldn't shoot. I think they hit four field goals at one point. I don't know what it finished out with. Conversely, Oregon State controlled the boards, they took care of the basketball, and they ran an efficient offense. And that game could have even been more lopsided. Really, there was a stretch there where they just seemed like they could not hit a little bunny shot on the inside. Now, the one thing I do want to note, although I think Wayne Tinkle is definitely deserving of Coach of the Year in the Pac-12, what he has done with this team uh, this year has been remarkable because they were voted dead last in the Pac-12 in the preseason polls. I don't think that was necessarily a, a bad idea by the media. I thought they were certainly a bottom three team at best, and they and they were better. Uh, did they benefit from Arizona not being in the Pac-12 championships? Yes, but they certainly have done it all themselves. But I do want to pump the brakes a little bit on Wayne Tinkle. While this team has completely overachieved, I think some of his other teams have underachieved. I think when you look at some of the talent that's been out there, the fact that they weren't more consistently in the upper half of the Pac-12. Why they didn't contend for even more NCAA tournaments, I think, is, is sort of... Uh, a knock on Tinkle and what that staff has done. Now, I don't think it's nearly as bad as the prior coaching staff, who I think had talent there the whole time and just could never break through. 
But before we start talking about Wayne Tinkle being the second best coach uh, in the Pac-12, let's just, uh, again, pump the brakes on that one just a little bit. Although, he has a very realistic chance uh, at going to a Final Four as he has to face uh, really nothing but smaller conference teams. Now, I think Houston is way better. I would pick Houston to go out of that bracket. But if you look at it, they've Oregon State has a lot of opportunities uh, to make a fantastic run and one of their best runs uh, in 40 or 50 years. I am not surprised with the ACC's lack of success in watching uh, limited ACC games this year. Just was never overly impressed with any of the squads. In fact, Syracuse really flying the banner and I think the key for Syracuse is it's just so hard to prepare for them in a short time, especially if you haven't seen them. That is one reason why lower-seeded uh, Syracuse teams have done so well under Bayheim. When they are a double-figure seed, they tend to win and, w- and win multiple games. Uh, but overall, when you look at, you know, Georgia Tech was a flawed team. Florida State, to me, was clearly kind of the class of that league, and they're, and they're still alive, and they, they're probably the team with the best chance to go to the final four but overall this was a down year with North Carolina being pretty average with Duke being a bad basketball team for for lots of the year it just wasn't a very good year especially at the top of the ACC it was a very average league and they had a lot of parity in the middle which made it a good league but did not make it a league capable of making a deep run now I am surprised with how bad the Big Ten was I watched a lot of Big Ten basketball this year and I thought it was a good league, a very good league. Now, I did think that Ohio State and Iowa were a bit overseeded as number twos. I thought this was really a a league with two elite teams, and that was Illinois and Michigan. I really thought Illinois was, to me, really past the eyeball test, especially the way they played at the end. I thought they were a legit team to make a Final Four run. I thought they were a Final Four team and really maybe entered the NSA tournament this year as the number two uh, team behind Gonzaga. I was wrong. They they looked uh, completely discombobulated against Loyola of Chicago. I think Michigan was, was very good for much of the year, although they kind of limped into the finish, but they're really rallying now. And the interesting thing is you have so many of these double-figure seeds. You, you know, you have your... 11 UCLA you have your Oregon State you have your Oral Roberts but at the end of the day I wouldn't be shocked if we don't see three number ones and a number two make it I think Michigan has its hands full in its region but I think Houston who's a two seed has maybe the easiest path assuming they can figure out Syracuse I think you look at Gonzaga they just look clearly better than everyone else even in the game they struggled I think they end up winning by almost 20 Baylor looks really good. So while this has been a really fun first weekend, first two rounds where we got a lot of upsets, I think the upsets that we see actually benefit these higher ranked teams and two, maybe even three of the number ones I could see being in the final four. But still nothing. It's been just a great, really fun tournament. And uh, as much as you miss having those games all over the country, it's kind of been fun to see them all in, in Indianapolis. It's been fun to see a place like Hinkle Fieldhouse get to host games. So uh, really exciting tournament so far. And, and the women's tournament is also shaping up to be very exciting. Spring football has started. Jed Fish and crew getting started on well, seeing a lot of good things, uh, at least from a promotional standpoint. About 50 fans turned out, from my understanding. I was not able to make it out and probably uh, won't make it out for for a few of the first practices. As uh, Actually, my kids' baseball league uh, practices are going to take priority. However, those expecting a lot of answers, I think, will be disappointed. 
with a new staff in place, spring is really more about teaching schemes more than establishing a pecking order. I don't think we'll see a huge, you know, we won't see a lot of answers there. That said, it's also a great chance for guys to make a name for themselves because there are very few preconceived biases, especially with the limited number of snaps last year, both from only playing five games, when you compound that with guys opting out with some injuries, there being a mostly completely new staff. I mean, Chuck Cecil had some familiarity with some of those guys as an analyst, but they're starting over from scratch. So that means guys who maybe did not get a great opportunity for whatever reason under the prior staff will have a chance to turn some heads. It also means, though, that if you if you if you don't turn some heads and someone else does at your position, uh, it could be a little bit harder to maybe make up ground, especially in those positions like quarterback. Uh, like even running back where there are less opportunities to play where it's just kind of one guy gets kind of the call I think one of the big changes one of the big things to watch is how do the quarterbacks deal with being under center uh, from what I understanding on the first day of practice about 30 percent of the snaps were taken under center there are literally guys on this program who maybe have not since Pop Warner or ever taken a snap from center. That's kind of how that modern spread game goes. So how does a guy like Gunnar Cruz deal with being under center? How does does any of them really? I think this is an opportunity. I think the guys who can maybe pull away a little bit are Cruz, are Will Plummer, and I think this is a big opportunity for Kevin Doyle because Cruz has a little bit of tape on him. Plummer has quite a bit of tape on him. Doyle's the mystery. Doyle has not taken a snap in an NCAA game. There's, I don't think, a ton of film. I don't know how much they look at other staff's practices or spring games. So Doyle's the guy who I think really has a chance to either really help his cause and put him up in the top of that quarterback race or can actually do the most harm and drop himself down below guys, in which case you wonder what his future is. I I think with Plummer and Cruz, it's going to be a little bit harder for them to separate themselves one way or another. I I think it's going to be harder for them to rise up above guys. I think it's also going to be harder for them to to go down. And then you got the couple of different walk-ons on the roster. We're going to talk more about the quarterback position. Uh, Really, if you you look at the other takeaways, everyone really impressed with the teaching ability of Don Brown, who's become maybe one of the most quotable coaches in a long time. A guy who's not afraid to literally flex in videos. A guy who's done a, doing a lot of teaching right now. A guy, again, it's his defense. I've seen some reports that only a few of the coaches were really vocal on the defense side of the ball. But that's not a real surprise. As if you look at it, he and Dudzinski have been together for so long. They know this defense the best. They're going to be doing the bulk of of the teaching in the this portion of practice compared to uh, what they may be doing in the fall. I actually saw that a lot on Rich Rod's first staff, where it was Castile and some of the carryovers from the West Virginia staff who did the bulk of the yelling and the teaching, whereas some of the other new hires to the staff really didn't become nearly as vocal until the fall. But for the most part, again, this is going to be lacking a lot of drama. Where No one's going to name a starting quarterback. We may not even see a full set of starters. I think the biggest shock, maybe seven more guys that we expected to be on the roster look like they are off the roster now. Uh, that includes Bobby Wolf, a guy I think they were really kind of counting on. The Quabina Watson looks like he may be a big loss, but at the end of the day, 
these guys were non-factors for the most part last year, so how big of a loss if you're a non-factor on a zero-win team? Would you rather have some of these bodies? Yes, but we don't know what kind of off-the-field stuff, what kind of attitudes there were, whether they just didn't mesh with the new staff, or maybe they were just guys who needed a new look, just weren't happy at Arizona, in which case, again, you're better off with them out of the program, but certainly from a talent standpoint, you know, guys like Wolf and Watson and, and a few of the others are going to be some some blows to this team. But better that it happens now when you're still in this rebuilding stage, when you're still in the early stages of trying to develop talent in Arizona compared to maybe a year or two from now when these guys are contributors or when you could lose a contributor. And that's a bigger blow uh, than it is now where we're in the nascent stages of the Jedfish era. And we'll wrap this one up with some recruiting updates from the football program. Arizona getting two commitments this week. The first one, very intriguing, Tristan Monday, uh, linebacker out of Scottsdale, Saguaro. Three-star guy, top 900 type guy. Is he a huge time pickup? No, but he's important for a couple reasons. First and foremost, he's from Scottsdale, Saguaro, a place Arizona has struggled to get commitments out of. Uh, really since Mike Stoops was in Tucson. And this is a place where we thought maybe Kevin Sumlin could break in as he recruited Scottsdale Saguaro pretty well to Texas A&M, but really couldn't get a sniff out of their players. Uh, I know they had one guy committed briefly, but he decommitted and will wind up at a bigger school. But this guy had some legitimate offers. Baylor, Colorado, Florida State, among others. So getting a a guy with quality offers from a quality, if you could argue one of the three or four, maybe maybe even the best uh, program in the Phoenix area, along with you know Chandler and, and, and Hamilton, but getting a guy out of Scottsdale Saguaro to go with uh, you know the commitment from from Hamilton's Grayson Stovall a few months ago. That's two of the programs Arizona has really struggled to recruit, and you get two players from those programs and, and quality players, legit three star guys, legit top thousand guys. Are are these program changers? No, but these are these are important commitments. The other one, a little less inspiring Jermaine Wiggins Jr a uh, 6'4 230 pound listed as an athlete supposed to be a defensive end type is a guy who again not the inspiring offers was being recruited by the likes of Connecticut Marshall UMass so that is a concern uh, here's a guy who really doesn't have any rankings for me of the national services now he does come from the northeast he was recruited a, a bit by Don Brown when he was at Michigan, although I don't believe he ever was offered. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Um, So this, again, this isn't as inspiring. Now, maybe they see something in this kid. Maybe he's terrifically athletic. He has great pedigree as his dad played in the NFL. But when you're looking at some of these other guys that they have been recruiting uh, and who you're going up against to land these guys, when you look at, you know, Jonah Coleman's, uh, offers when you look at Tristan Monday's offers when you look at some of the guys who are even on campus as Arizona uh, has had some some really nice unofficial visits of late including a, a four-star linebacker who used to be committed to Michigan including uh, and some pretty intriguing three-star players Jermaine Wiggins a little less inspiring and again you don't want Arizona to fall into the trap that they really did under someone and to, to really an extent under 
Rodriguez, where you're just battling, you know, the marshals of the world for players. Now, if you uncover a guy here or there, remember, no one really wanted Scooby Wright. No one really wanted, you know, going back to Teddy Bruschi. So you can't poo-poo on all of these. But if this becomes the norm instead of the exception, then I think that becomes a problem. That being said, we're going to maybe look back a few years from now and think that Jermaine Wiggins is one of the absolute steals of this class, in which case credit to Jed Fish and the rest of his staff for uncovering uh, Jim. Fun stuff going on. Football in full swing. We're still on Sean Miller watch. And, of course, Adia Barnes and the Wildcat women's team. We haven't touched on softball or baseball today, and we'll do that in a future time. But a lot of stuff going on in the world of the Wildcats. You've been listening to the Wildcat Sports Report podcast. Bear down.